Welcome back to the program. Long before radio, I spent years in Hollywood, before anyone invented the word processor or the copy machine. When those things came along, everyone joked that screenwriting software and easy access to copying would lower the quality of screenplays. Little did those jokesters know that that was just the beginning. Not only did the medium become the message, it subsumed the message. The medium, the technology, the process, in fact, became the creative endeavor. Today, it's apps and coding and creative destruction. And yes, technology makes life easier, cheaper, faster, and sometimes does allow more time for creativity. But in the process, is there something that we've lost? Without getting stuck in the tired morass of the old ways we're better, is there some objective thing we've lost in our culture, in ourselves, and in our intellectual DNA as a result of all the changes that have taken place in our society? We're going to talk about this with my guest, Scott Timberg. He's a former arts reporter for the L.A. Times. He writes extensively on music and culture and contributes to Salon and the New York Times. He runs the arts journal Culture Crash Blog. And it is my pleasure to welcome Scott Timberg here to talk about his new book, Culture Crash, The Killing of the Creative Class. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to have you here. Going back a long, long time ago, Aristotle used to worry that the invention of writing would somehow impact our memory and our ability to remember things and tell stories. All these many years later, we're once again worried about the impact of technology on the culture and on the larger framework of what it means to be human. Is this just a recurring pattern, or is there something more fundamental going on today than at any other inflection point like this? Well, I, I think you, you've set this up with, with the right terms. Um, I mean, for instance, technology does do some good things, make some things more convenient. Um, you know, I, I would join the people who say that what we're going through is, is uh, you know, there's been technological change throughout history, beginning with the wheel and, and uh, the stirrup and writing. And, you know, we, we've always had technological change, but that what we're going through now is probably the biggest and most radical fundamental change since the Industrial Revolution. And as with that, you know, good things happen, bad things happen. My book is not so much concerned with figuring out is the Internet good or is digital technology good. It's, it's asking what is technology as well as some economic and social factors doing to the creative class? What, is, what does it do to people who, who make music for a living, who uh, write uh, novels, uh, paint, uh, make movies, um, journalists, especially those who write about uh, culture, how have these changes reshaped the lives of these people? And, and most, of, most of what I've found, again, there's good stuff. I enjoy being on Facebook, and it's easy for a journalist to do research online, and, and uh, you know, iTunes is fun. You know, there, there's been all kinds of things, but, but most fundamentally for my purposes, what it means is that the bookstore – that used to be in your town is gone. The record store and the people who worked there who were often obsessive, you know, record collectors and in some, some cases people in bands and people on their way to other things, those people are gone too. It means the newspaper, the weekly, uh, all kinds of, all, all these elements of the support structure that allows arts and culture to happen are disappearing too. So there's been a mix of things, but for the creative class, the, the recent wave of digital technology has uh, has not been good news, despite all the sort of hype and excitement around it. Mm -hmm. Do we need to redefine 
what we mean by the creative class. Because when we hear that term, and for example, in some of the areas that Richard Florida talked about it, the creative class also meant all the techies here in Silicon Valley, all the people that were involved in, in creating within the world of technology as well. That's right. That, 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 that's a very good point. I define the creative class a little differently than, than Florida does. He made, he, he made the term uh, popular, and he defines it more broadly. I think even you know, basically anybody who, who works with their brains and, and, and has a, a college degree. I think lawyers are in his description. I think pharmaceutical mm-hmm. engineers. You know, to me, uh, it's much more useful to talk about the creative class as people who have some hand in culture. And I mean that very broadly. I mean it's sort of that the, the upper middle class of the creative class would be, say, an architect. Uh, the lower middle class of the creative class would be the bookstore clerk, record store clerk. You have maybe a, a journalist who writes about art in the middle, novelists, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I define the creative class as people who have some role in culture. And you mentioned Silicon Valley. I mean, if, if, if you are working at Google or have ownership in Facebook or something like that, you know, these are the best of times. You know, other people are creating the, the, the music, the, the photography. Uh, you know, if you're at Amazon, other people are writing the books. Uh, you're, um, you're working at a, a lovely campus where sushi is free, you know, with a cafeteria. You know, it's a vastly different, you know, you can afford to live in the Bay Area. People like me, that is musicians, writers, et cetera, are being pushed out of, of San Francisco, Berkeley, New York, L.A., et cetera, et cetera. So if you're on the other side um, of things, the, the tech side, the, the things are, are rolling very, very nicely. Is it possible, though, to have this conversation, to look at these issues in the realm of culture entirely? Because as you talk about in, in Culture Crash, they are part of a much larger framework that involves globalization, the globalization of selling, the globalization of money, the globalization of economics, as well as significant changes that have taken place in the culture itself. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, one, of the key, one of my key points is that the creative class is a subset of the middle class. And that's something that's, that goes against our sort of expectations. I mean, most of the artists and musicians we hear about are the superstars. You know, we think, well, you know, Justin Bieber's doing okay. Uh, you know, Lady Gaga's doing great. Jack Coons is, is famous and has a big show at the Whitney. What do you mean the creative class is in trouble? But the, the vast, vast, vast majority of us who work in culture are in the middle class. And because of that, we're hammered by the same forces that are, you know, hitting the middle class in, in, in every field. So you mentioned globalization. There's all kinds of things, but I probably don't have to tell you that the recession hit the middle class extremely hard. I mean, I lost my house. A lot of other people did. And, uh, the supposed recovery has all gone to the very rich. Uh, median income has actually gone down during the economic recovery for the, you know, for the middle class. So uh, if you're an artist, a writer, a musician, et cetera, you may have thought you were leaving all this stuff behind and entering sort of bohemia or something like that. But, you know, if, if you're, uh, you're caught in the same web as the rest of the middle class. And until recently, I mean, we're in a transition period right now, but, until recently, if you were a musician uh, without medical insurance and you got sick, you had the same problem that you know any American without medical insurance. Does. The fact that you are an artist 
does not inoculate you from these other forces that have been, you know, sort of set set loose uh, to, to kind of ravage the middle class over a couple of decades. You're, you're right in there. You're as vulnerable as, as, as everyone else. One of the things, though, that has worked against making that case is the mythology that has grown up for so long of the starving artist up there in the proverbial garret. Absolutely. I mean, this is why I emphasize the middle class nature of this. I mean, you know, we, since the 19th century, because that, that myth that you describe, you know, it, it, it's not trans-historical. It doesn't go back forever. It really is a 19th century Parisian idea that, that spread from there. And, you know, you could call it sort of the myth of Bohemia. And then you also have the myth of the, the artist hero, which goes back, we could say, to the Renaissance or something like that. So we tend to think of artists as being either, you know, that celebrities, you know, like, say, a Michelangelo or a, or a Kanye West or something, or we think of them as, as starving in the gutter. And it's, it's, there are a few cases of each, but again, the vast majority of musicians, writers, um, graphic designers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Painters are people in the middle class trying to retain a foothold in the middle class, and they're struggling with the same decimation that the rest of the middle class uh, struggles with. It's true even of famous people, you know, uh, who, the writers you love, the musicians you love. They are trying to get, move into neighborhoods so their kids can go to good schools. They need to live in safe places. They need, you know, running water and all the same stuff that anyone else does. Again, despite our mythology that artists exist on some separate plane. What role has celebrity culture and the way we view artists' role in society, What to what extent has that played a significant role, in your view, in what we're seeing? Well, celebrity culture has... has done what uh, has helped spread the myth I'm talking about. I mean, again, if the only artists we hear about are celebrities, we don't have a real sense of, of how the arts work or, or how the lives of artists and, and craftsmen uh, really operate. Uh, the, the other problem with celebrity culture, and it's, it, it's not just the culture, you know, it's not just our thinking about celebrity, it's the way economics increasingly works, is what I call a, a winner-take-all system. Uh, it means that the people at the very top of the pyramid, the, uh, the one dimensions and the, the eagles and, and, and the sort of superstar acts uh, are increasingly dominating the marketplace. Um, we've always had superstars, obviously. We've always had, you know, filmmakers, musicians, etc., who sell more than, than the others. That's just the nature of culture. But the the top, it's, 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 again, it's parallel to the way the top 1% is getting an increasingly huge percentage of U.S. wealth. We've always had rich people. We've always had poor people. But celebrity culture and, and economic shifts mean that the, the very richest, the very most famous are getting a larger and larger part of the pie, and people in the vast middle are getting left behind. More and more every year, technology has a role in this, too. Technology, to what extent also has market forces, market culture, driven so much of this? Oh, I mean, market, market forces and market culture are, are crucial. I mean, you know, my, my, my book really looks at, at economics, uh, technology, and sort of social, cultural changes. And, you know, the, the, for hundreds of years, the arts, whether it's, it's a novel or a, a song or, or, a, or a painting, They've been part of the market economy. That, that's not brand new. That goes back to at least the 18th century. Um, but 
the market has gotten more relentless, and again, our thinking about it has become more sort of, you know, uh, kind of irrational and, and kind of influenced by by people like Ayn Rand, who think that the market is all that all that matters. Uh, when you when you look at coverage often of, of say classical music and, and other things that don't typically um, things that that don't fit in quite as neatly with with market uh, market capitalism. You see people say, hey, look, if this symphony can't make it, it means that the customers voted with their feet. It, it means uh, these, these guys have to do something else. You know, there's a kind of heartlessness to our current version of capitalism that says the arts only matter if they generate income to support themselves. Some kinds of culture can do that, but some kinds of culture never have. You know, we had classical music for hundreds of years that had much less to do with the market economy. And, you know, it would be great if, if capitalism could support everything that's valuable, but it doesn't, it's, it does a lot of things well, but unhinged capitalism, purely unregulated capitalism doesn't fit in real well with the arts and culture. It fits in better with, with, with some other, uh, some other things, but you, you know, you again, you see it in, um, you see it in what's happened to bookstores and record stores. You know, you have big online companies that are just crushing these things. And, and if, you, if you leave the markets free, uh, it doesn't always end well for creatives. It doesn't always end well for communities. And yet the counterargument to that that we hear virtually every day is that the Internet, by allowing everyone to publish their writing, their music, what have you, has in some ways democratized the market. Sure, you hear that all the time. And... Um, you know, the um, every every single person who, who has had some kind of luck online, you know, say the Amanda Palmers, every single person who does that has an enormous platform, and you, you hear about them endlessly. It reminds me of, of the way, if you look at the, 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 the original Gilded Age from, from a little more than 100 years ago, you had Horatio Alger stories. You know, people wanted to hear that, that someone could come from nowhere and and, and luck out and, and pull themselves up and, and make a fortune. We have the same things now, but, but they tend to be based around the Internet. It's, it's a sort of casino economy. Uh, you know, not, it's not a business model. And just as the Gilded Age in many ways was the unintended consequence, or for some the intended consequence, of the Industrial <laughs> Revolution, what we're seeing now is in many ways the consequence of, of this technological revolution. And are there parallels we can look to then in terms of the way this might play out and the ways that it can be shaped to play out arguably differently? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, technology and, and the economy and, and changing social attitudes are, are all on a slightly different uh, schedule. You know, they're, they're, if you think of, you know, sort of planets all in different orbits, uh, they're connected in some ways and other ways not connected. They've all come together to make life very hard for, for most members of the creative class. And again, uh, for, for those who have managed to harness the Internet uh, to, their, uh, you know, to their purposes, uh, these people get, get so much coverage that, that it, 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 makes, it makes audiences think, hey, things are going great, and it's simply not the case. Talk a little bit about what has gone on in this economy for the creative the creative class as you define it in terms of the need to one freelance to create your own brand to really take on all the responsibilities of what used to be the corporation for the individual well that's right i mean 
some people are better suited to this than others. You know, if, if you're, if you're a, a musician, an artist of some kind who can do it all, who, who's uh, naturally self-promoting, who's good at marketing, uh, who can go online and create your blog and then do your own PR, you know, and, and if you can do all of and run a Kickstarter campaign at the same time, if you can, if you can do all that stuff and still have time left over to say, write your novel, make your music, and do the thinking and sort of practicing, and all the things that, it, that an actual artist has to do in, in order to keep sharp. If you can handle all of, the, all of the extra stuff and still be a substantial artist, these are good times. And again, there are a handful of people, people like this. Amanda Palmer is one of them. Uh, if you're not, you can find that your, your efforts to build your brand, to build your blog, to promote yourself, you can find that you end up squeezing out the time that, that you really need to actually be writing, painting, making music, whatever. The other consequence of this that makes me especially uncomfortable is that a certain kind of artist will thrive and others will be forced out, which is to say people who are naturally outgoing, people who are naturally self-promoting, uh, and people who have uh, the, the people who are who are shyer, the people who are uh, less uh, technologically savvy, the people who who aren't naturally entrepreneurial, these people are are increasingly getting left behind. That makes me uncomfortable because a lot of the the artists, the writers, the musicians, et cetera, who I've admired over the years are not self promoters. They're not uh, uh, you know brand. Uh, you know, they're, they're not branding ambassadors. They're musicians or poets or, or whatever. I don't want these people to be crushed because we've redefined what an artist is. The other thing that it doesn't allow is it doesn't allow the development of art or the development of craft. As you point out, a lot of novelists were former journalists. A lot of artists were once maybe studio musicians or they worked maybe in Tower Records, as you talk about. Right, That, it, that, that yeah. it doesn't allow the evolution of art or the evolution of craft. That's right. I mean, there, and there, there, you know, there's sort of two elements of that. I mean, the, the, the bookstore and the record store have, have been historically places where, where, you know, artists, writers, musicians on the make spend some time, you know, surrounded by other people who, who, who love music and, and books. Uh, and th th these are people who want to be around the stuff, you know, they, they want to be close to it. And that can serve as an apprenticeship that has for, Novelists like Jonathan Lethem, who worked for bookstores in the uh, in the Bay Area, Lucinda Williams worked at a record store uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, Tom Verlaine, a lot of the punk uh, musicians did this in New York. So that's crucial. But th there's another phrase that comes to mind. You know, jazz musicians talk about woodshedding. You know, and the idea of spending just hours and hours and, and maybe months and months, sort of alone or or just with other players, working on your technique. You know. Uh, over and over again. It's sort of silently and privately. And in this new world in which everybody's got to be self-promoting all the time, in which our every utterance goes online, there's no time for that sort of development of the soul that, that, that makes a makes a real artist. Part of the, the self-promoting aspect goes to this fact that there is so much that is able to be put out there because of technology and so much noise and activity in the marketplace that getting anything to stand out becomes so much more difficult and the process of curation of it has changed so dramatically. 
Well, breaking through the noise has become increasingly difficult. And, you know, my opponents will say things like, well, you know, the Beatles had a manager and a publicist and, uh, you know, every novelist who was on a, was on a, uh, a publisher has had people working to, to sell their work. I mean, my grand, you know, my grandfather was in, was in vaudeville and a, he was a tin pan alley songwriter. There were song pluggers back then. So there's always been an element of the, uh, of the culture business that, that depended on that. But I feel like the, 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 the selling, uh, the breaking through the noise, the brand strategies, et cetera, have, uh, have taken over and the, the art itself is being lost. And, and you mentioned curation, which is extremely important. And, and curation has been done for decades now, maybe a century or so, by arts journalists, by people who, uh, who, if they're ethical, have no financial stake in the work they're judging. When newspapers or magazines start shutting down or start laying off their arts critics and their culture reporters, the process gets uh, gets interrupted, and, and it means that there's no honest curation, no honest, what you could call sort of honest brokerage anymore. What you have instead is is uh, a system that's very easy to sort of jack. You know, it's it's like the way on Yelp, you can you can ask ten of your friends to go on and say that you've got the best restaurant ever. Uh, you know, it's very different than, than the way, uh, you know, say a newspaper food critic will, will go in, usually anonymously, and, and, and try to do an ethical and responsible job. Curation is, has become a, a process much more easily corrupted. What impact, and you talk about this, has our short attention span had on all of this? And what impact does it have on the way we view art and culture in general? Attention span is a hugely important issue. I mean, since, since, you know, as long as I've been alive, people have been lamenting the shrinking of the attention span. You know, people talked about it when TV came in. They talked about it when, when rock and roll came in. You know, I, I sort of laughed it off, and I just thought people were being uptight. Um, after a while, you realize that there's something to this, and that if, 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 if our visual life is all in, you know, quick sort of 10-second bursts, you know, you, you go to most bars in, in in, in a big city and there's screens up on the walls and the, the screens are sort of, you know, cutting and flashing all the time. There's no way that, that that's not going to have an effect on the way people take in art. So, you know, the, the long novel, you know, the symphony, the piece of chamber music, uh, the long jazz piece becomes much harder for people to take. And it, it means you do get, it's, it's not like you don't get any art or culture anymore, but it means that the work that requires concentration, which is often the, the deepest, stuff. Um, that work finds an increasingly small and narrow audience. You, you're losing some of the human experience if you're not able to concentrate on something over a, a long period of time. And yet the other side of all of this is that book sales are reasonably healthy. There is what some people consider a golden age of long-form television. I mean, there's a lot of arguments to be made for a certain amount of culture actually taking place out there. Sure, there still is culture, and you know, television is in is in a very good period right now, which may be a bubble. I mean, you know, you can't always tell when something is on its way out. Television seems to me uh, a real golden age, but it also feels um, it, it feels like the plug could be pulled any time. Um, there are still books being sold. It's not like we don't have movies coming, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the problem, though: if people who who do this stuff, people who write, make music, etc., can't make a living anymore. 
they will stop doing it mm-hmm. and they will they will tell their children to stop doing it and we will we will still have um you know art music and so on but it will be be done by exclusively by people who don't need to make a living from it it'll be done by celebrities who can get big book advances it'll be done by tenured professors who don't need to make money from their from their art and it'll be done by people with trust funds and as a, a sort of lifetime member of the middle class and somebody who who recognizes how much important music, art, literature, et cetera, has come from other middle-class people who need to live on their work. That, that's not a world I want to live in. Uh, if, if we're going to see the middle class and the creative class decimated, I don't think that, uh, that's a sign of improvement. And finally, it all comes back to education in many ways. All we have to do is look yeah, at, at the yeah. graduation situation in our even our elite colleges in terms of what the majors are that kids are focused on today. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm, I'm 45, and, you know, my mom, my, my uh, you know, my dad to some extent, a lot of the people I know uh, who are a generation older than me majored in English or history or art history or something like that. It's, it's, it, it was that, that idea that studying something because it was profound and you were trying to deepen yourself was still alive when I was in college in the 80s. It was, it was true for my my wife as well. Um, that's changed immensely. Um, people now, uh, how can I, I don't want to over generalize, but the number of people majoring in liberal arts, uh, you know, what you could call sort of disinterested pursuit of knowledge has fallen uh, pretty significantly. And the number of, of graduates, especially from Ivy League schools, who go immediately to, uh, to Wall Street or, or something like Wall Street, uh, it, it, it is staggering. Um, I, I understand why it's partly social. It partly has to do, I think, with a loss of faith in, in what the arts and culture can provide. It also has to do with the fact that that partial privatization means that education is is much more expensive than it used to be. I, I got through a, a, a good private school, Wesleyan, because of student loans that were federally funded. If, if I was going to college now, I wouldn't get close to a a Wesleyan, mm-hmm. Swarthmore, Stanford kind of school. Uh, no, no middle class person will if, if we stay on this road, and and that has profound effects for for culture and for the creative class. And if we stay on this road, Scott, where do, where does it take us? What is what is the timeline that you see? You know, I, I, I'm not very good at, at predictions. And I tend not to trust those from other people. I, I think we can count on the trends that have been established. You know, reinforcing, which means. Uh, if, if you think there, there are not enough, you know, bookstores and record stores, weeklies, newspapers, et cetera, in your town or in your county, you know, just wait. You know, let's give it a few more years and, and see how many more shut down. If you're a, if you're a, a, a novelist and you think your advances are low, uh, if you're a journalist and you think the amount you're getting paid per piece is low, if you're a musician, even a really successful musician who, who made a decent living during the label era, uh, if you think the money you're getting from Spotify and Pandora and, and other services like that it, it, it is a trickle, you know, give it five or ten years, and uh, we'll see all this stuff get worse. We'll see the big tech companies get richer, and we'll see the tiny number of people who are, th- you know, the tiny number of creative people who are thriving in this economy uh, taking up more and more space in the discourse. You know, we'll, we'll continue to hear more and more about them. We'll continue to hear about how things are getting democratized. Uh, how artists just need to adjust. Uh, we'll, con- we'll keep hearing that we, uh, we live in the best of all possible worlds. 
the people who see it otherwise will, I think, continue to be drowned out. Scott Timberg, his book is Culture Crash, The Killing of the Creative Class. It's just out from Yale University Press. Scott, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Sure. Thank you, Jeff. Very good questions. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.